Well, it is June 4th, 2017. Our message today is called Rock. R-O-C-K, Rock. I wanted to remind you of a couple things that are happening. In a few weeks, we're going to the ancient area of Asia Minor, uh, the country of Turkey. We're taking a team back there to visit our first converts in the area, to retrace our steps and also to break new ground. We're going to continue to tell you more about that and next Sunday. Our message is going to be about the churches of Asia Minor, which are all seven of the churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, you won't want to miss that. Additionally, in the weeks that are coming, you're going to hear from more people in this body about their desires and their passion for the nations. We're going to do the same thing during our children's church, uh, VBS. This is because we are a church who believes... Uh, that the purpose that God gathered us together here is to prepare you for your calling. Uh, this ministry is not about the leaders of the ministry. It is about the congregation being prepared to do exactly what you have been called to do. It is our heart's desire to provide for you governance, uh, assistance, guidance, and to send you uh, where God has sent you. Those of you that are staying, we're thrilled to have you. You're going to be put to work here doing exactly that. Can y'all say amen? amen? There's a place for everybody in this congregation. And it won't be based on carnal titles or worldly systems. It's based on the Word of God. I'd like to say that I thought Pastor Sutherland... Oh, by the way, I, I'm and mentioning Turkey. Uh, three or four families are right now preaching in the other one association churches about Turkey. That's, uh, that's why the hole in the center here right now and we feel their loss but at the same time can you imagine what it feels like at new life fellowship in victoria texas to have those spiritual stallions step through the door today it's a blessing our lives are not about us they are outward focused for the purpose of making the body of christ stronger everywhere we go so the message that Pastor Sutherland preached this last Sunday, uh, I thought was extraordinary, last Wednesday rather, was about the God of Pentecost. Uh, on our website, you can see it with this logo and uh, this picture associated with it. Uh, I think it was such a good message that I want to pick up on some of those points and themes as we go through today, as we preach about the rock. But the centerpiece of pastor's message was really this word, chesed. So chesed had to do with God's loving kindness, his mercy, his goodness, his faithfulness, his loving acts of kindness. How many of you were touched by that? Amen. Amen. Everybody who was here on Wednesday. And we're not going to waste time this morning with he said, she said. <laughs> Pastor Wade abundantly cleared up the issue. The male is the more loving of the gender. You don't think Pastor cleared that up? Well, you'd have to listen to know. Go back and listen to it again. Actually, Pastor said no such thing. I mean, but if you want to know for sure, you better listen to it again. All kidding aside, last week, Pastor hinted at a few details within the feast. And that's where I'm going to pick up today and expand. I want to talk to you beginning with the Feast of Pesach, Passover. So when we say Pesach, this is the Hebrew word for Passover. And look at Leviticus 23, 
in verse 5 here. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made with or without yeast. With or without. Passover is a feast that initiates the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, look at your imagery as you think about this. A home is marked by the blood of the Lamb. It's a signifier that death has passed over the people inside the home. God's death angel ignores the people, overlooks their guilt because it's covered in the blood of the Lamb. But something is required. At the moment they're covered in the blood of the Lamb, they also have to begin ridding their house of leaven. That's incredible, isn't it? That in and of itself is an extraordinary picture of salvation. That the moment that you come into Christ, you may have lived a filthy, terrible life. In fact, most of us did. But the moment that you come into Christ, you begin ridding your house of that old leaven or that old yeast. How many of you understand that symbolism? Say, Pastor, I'm with you. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says something to us to remind us of the need for this. Our God is a God of holiness. So he says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch. Somebody say new. new. You ever needed a new start? You know, if you have the impression that you were once saved and now you're saved. Like when I was eight, I got my Bible with my name on it. I went down and I I got dunked in water. So so I was saved. You're missing out on something. You may very well have been saved there. But you've also been saved many times since then. Every time you've ever broken God's heart in your own in the process, you've needed to be saved from that guilt. This is an ongoing process being made new. Other places in the Bible, like 2 Corinthians 5, tell us things like, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. But the tenses of those verbs let you know that that is an ongoing process. The old has gone and the new has come. Another way to say it is the old is continuously going, the new is stated to be here and will continue to need to be here. We're in process. Man, one thing that the pastors here tried to do is live in such a transparent way that you can monitor our life, our doctrine, our progress closely. The Stevens are growing. The Sutherlands are growing. The Piros are growing. If you don't think the Stevens are very good pastors yet, we're getting better. We're in our 20th year of ministry. Can you imagine what it will be like in our 22nd year? We're growing. I'm not ashamed to say that we make mistakes. I'm not ashamed to say that we need to become new regularly. We need that. I'm reevaluating my positions all of the time because I must be standing in the center of God's will. And very often I have mission strift. Very often I look up and realize I'm not where I want to be. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. Do you hear the duplicity in that statement? 
Get rid of the yeast that you may be a new batch as you are. Another way to say that in the King Eric translation would be, this is who you've been called to be. Now get rid of that so that you can be what I'm saying you already are. That's so much like Christianity, isn't it? You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, Romans says. Then you realize that you're unrighteous. In admitting that you're unrighteous and asking for righteousness, you're of course declared righteous. It's a constant thing. It's also a constant thing, and I'm just picking up on the prophecies that occurred during our service. I never apologize for them. I wish there were more. If you're a guest and you're uncomfortable, I was once too uncomfortable with the moving of the Spirit of God. I preferred to be the king of my own life. But after he dethroned me, I've become pretty comfortable with the moving of his presence. I want to pick up on those prophecies for just a second. If you want to be pleasing to the Lord, then you have to acknowledge whatever has come into your life, whether it seems to be a disaster, whether it seems to be pleasant, seems to be unpleasant, a loving God has allowed into your life. And he will ultimately work it out for your benefit if you trust him. Hebrews 11 teaches this principle. As soon as you adopt a victim status, you're a victim of your circumstances, you're a victim of what is happening to you, God will not bless you. He cannot bless you. That's a very important thing because the whole world's trying to turn you into a victim right now, usually to obtain something from you. A Christian cannot be a victim, period. Because our God works everything out in conformity with His will. In all things, He works. Say, I'm not a victim. Don't give anybody else power over you to make you a victim, ever. Whatever you're going through right now, this moment, Hebrews 11.5 tells us, believe that God exists in it and that He will reward the man who seeks after Him. Amen? Amen. I'm going to be blessed. Say, I'm going to be blessed because I'm going to seek Him. So we're told, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. The very first feast, the very first experience that you would have as a young Israelite is every year in the spring, your parents would kill a lamb that was brought into your house and kept there for about four days. You would identify with the lamb. You'd love the little lamb because it was cute, right? It was Americans, maybe we need to get a French poodle. Especially since we're out of the Paris Accords. Just go ahead and kill the French dog too. You kill the, the not poodle, but lamb. And you'd cover your doorpost in blood. What a strange practice. And it was assembled. The leader of this house and everybody in this house... We're following a slain lamb. That's what we're doing. And then you would begin searching your house. Your father would lead it with a menorah, a seven-branched candlestick uh, that would light the house and you would get rid of any batches of leaven that were there, anything that was from your life before you were covered under the blood. Oh, man, you can see this in the life of new Christians. When Jennifer and I were born again, our clothing changed. You know, both of us wore more clothing. I found a skirt the other day. 
that I thought surely must be Abby's when, when she was like five. It was actually Jennifer's when she was 16. We stopped dressing like that. We stopped listening to certain things. We stopped doing a lot of things that we were doing that was wrong. But more importantly than that, we started doing an awful lot of things that were directed by God. Our life was not defined by all the things we stopped doing. It was defined by all the things we started doing. This is a chance to become new. <clears throat> not by all of the things that you no longer do, but by all of the things you're now motivated to do. Amen? In the name of Jesus, I want to be new. Say, I want to be new. It's not too late. Not for anybody in this room. No matter what has happened to you, no matter where you stand, it is not too late. It wasn't too late for a thief on a cross condemned to die. Oh, that's good news. You know, this idea of the need to be made new, the need to get rid of leaven, is because of a principle that the Hebrews call the Yetzer Ra. Yetzer Ra means inclination towards evil. Okay? And the Bible presumes that all human beings have that, an inclination towards evil. Uh, one of the elders put a pinball machine in the pastor's office. We keep it there like a glowing idol. None of us use it. We stack our stuff on it. It's a reminder that if we had any money at all, we could play it. One of the things that pinball machines have built into them is a leveling system. And that's because in a pinch, when you need something, you need just a little nudge, you shove it. And when you shove the pinball machine, it moves the ball inside. That is, of course, cheating. Yeah? Look, there's so many people in here that have never been around a pinball machine. It's funny <laughs> how young our church has become. It used to be that a light would light up on the pinball machine and it would say tilt. In other words, you've tilted this wrong. You're cheating. And your paddles would lock up and the ball would just, uh, you, you weren't allowed to strike it. Now, that didn't stop us from trying all of the time. The question became how much can you nudge it without, you know, getting the tilt warning, Okay. This would be similar to maybe this generation finding a code on the internet for unlimited respawning during a video game. <laughs> Not that our kids play video games because we're raising young adults in here and we don't waste time with those kind of things. And if you are above the age 30 and you're playing video games, don't admit it to any of us. <laughs> the Yetzer Ra is about an evil inclination. And... God's law was designed to change that evil inclination. So in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 29, you hear the expression of God's heart. In Deuteronomy 5, 29, he says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. Now, when you think about this, it's something that I cover a lot. Because you can hear the emotion of our God in it. Does this sound like a God who is waiting He's, oh my God, there's Daniel. I can finally get him and smash him. God's not waiting to beat you with a stick. If so, why is he waiting? You've already given him reason. Well, what would be holding him back? His heart is an expression of emotion 
Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children. His desire is for your good. You know, it's a little bit like coming home wanting with all of your heart to take your kids to do something that you know they want to do. I mean, I don't know what that might be. My little Abby right now wants to go see Wonder Woman, right? Yeah, can you picture me in a Wonder Woman show? (laughs) I'm going just because you said that. If I come home with the tickets in my back pocket intending to take her, but I find out she didn't do her homework, she didn't do anything that I ask, and she's being disrespectful. I don't tell her, but I'm disappointed that I don't get to do the good thing for her that I wanted to do. That's the sense in which God is writing His law. He wants to do good for you. He, what is He after? That it would go well with you and your children. His instruction is not about your restriction. It's about your welfare. And it turns out that we're inclined the wrong way all of the time. When, some, when your parents tell you as a child, don't get in that swimming pool, what do you do? Yeah, you wait till they're around the corner and you go at least stick your toe in, right? I didn't really get in the pool. Of course you did, right? We have an When you give a child ice cream and you give ice cream to the child next to him, 90% of the time, one of the child wants both scoops. I mean, we have a bent towards everything that is wrong. There's an interesting way that the ancient Hebrew prophet Jeremiah says this. In Jeremiah 13, 23, he said, Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Now, sometimes when you hear these kind of expressions, you don't know what to do with them. So I thought I would help you with it. White people are a little bit like Wonder Bread or saltine crackers. They can come in various shades of pasty to pink. If you have more money than you know what to do with and are willing to spend $45 for a quarter of an hour, you can even make yourself an ugly orange so that you look presidential. But an Ethiopian... He's unable to vary his skin color very much. He's pretty well born with a certain shade of skin and it stays that way. This is confirming the poetry of the streets and the ancient prophets agree. Once you go black, you'll never go back. Let that sink in a minute. While we're talking about ancient poetry. Let's think on Song of Songs for just a minute. Song of Songs, the single man said amen. We'll be praying for a wife, brother. Song of Songs, of out of all the poetry in the Bible, this Hebrew title, Song of Songs, means of all the poems ever written, I'm going to show you the most excellent of poems. Song of Songs 1.5 says this, Dark am I, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, 
dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tents of curtains of Solomon. This is confirming yet again the undeniable truth that has flowed straight from the social transformation of the 60s, that black is indeed beautiful. The Bible makes an interesting statement because as beautiful as we say black is, the Ethiopian can't change his skin. And there's a reason that these two things are mentioned in this way. Black is beautiful, but sin is not. What we're getting at here is the unchangeable nature of the human being. You can put a child in a better environment, and you know what he does? He ruins that environment. You know, all of you who believe that your child is perfect and the problem is he's in with the wrong crowd need to reconcile your thoughts with the parent sitting next to you because one of your children is not only not perfect, he is the wrong crowd. See, many times in my life I thought the problem was my circumstances. Until God put me in so many different circumstances that became a problem, I went... The common denominator here is me. No matter what school I'm in, no matter what situation I'm in, no matter who I'm in. In fact, you could put me in the Garden of Eden and I'd screw it up. If you don't like that word, I mean an inclined plane wrapped around a cylinder. I would get things all twisted up. Now, I can tell by the deafening silence in here that you can't relate to that that I'm the only one here that has come to that staggering conclusion. The sinful nature. Sin, it's ugly. It takes a supernatural emptying of self, emptying of leaven, emptying of something that you're inclined to so that you can be not wicked but righteous. The Passover or Pesach is about being covered in the blood and emptied of the leaven Or another way to say it, your constant inclination to sin. In chemistry, you often will put uh, something called a catalyst into a liquid or a situation. And what it begins to do is it fundamentally changes the state of what is there. It initiates or triggers a change. Well, number one, human beings were created perfect. But a catalyst was introduced to us called sin. And once sin was entered into the human race... Sin does something to us. It further degrades us exponentially in every generation. So much so that what happens is in one generation, a man's figuring out how to murder one man. In the next generation, how to kill his whole family line. In the next generation, his whole race of people. Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. You thought you were going to go to the club and just have a good time for a little while. But by the end of the evening, you did things and things were done to you that you didn't plan on. You don't believe me? Drive down Westheimer, stop and talk to any of the homeless men at Westheimer and Six and ask them which one of them from their early youth wanted to be addicted to drugs. Which one of them from their early youth wanted to do indecent things with their body for survival? Who wakes up one day and says, you know what? I hope today I can become a crack whore. It doesn't happen, does it? 
It's the deceptive process of sin that says, if I can go this far, I'll enjoy it and it'll be fine. Of course, sin always drags you a little further and it's not nearly as much fun in retrospect as you thought it would be up front. That process is a downhill slide for humanity. It's an incline towards the wrong way. And so what Passover does is it comes in and says, hey, I want to give you a new start. You're all sliding towards death. But if you're covered under the blood of the lamb and you will empty your houses, I will make you new. Oh, man, what a good thing that you can be made new. In this case, the leopard does change the spots. In this case, anything is possible. It just takes supernatural help. Say, I need supernatural help. Oh man, do I need supernatural help? I've had enough of men and their rules. I've had enough of religion. It turns out that if you watch TV, for the price that the preacher asks, anything is possible. But that's not the gospel, is it? The gospel is for the man who believes everything is possible. Not for the man who has 1999 endlessly. That takes you further than you want to go too. You start off tipping him, then you move to bribing him, then you just try to buy eternal life. It won't work. It never has. It never will. The gospel is ultimately about a new start so that when you reach the feast of Pentecost, which pastor was preaching about, or Shavuot. Let's show that slide for a minute. Look what happens. During Shavuot, which is a harvest feast, you found out, a time period of ingathering, verse 15 of Leviticus 23, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of fine flour, Baked with yeast. With or without? With With yeast. As a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. You know, Shavuot is an interesting thing. How is it that in the first feast, yeast is wrong? And in the second feast, yeast is not only not wrong, it's required. Because yeast does not represent sin in the Bible. It represents your inclination a change agent. And if you can remove the yeast that was leading you towards sin, it can be replaced with a heavenly yeast that will train you or lean you towards righteousness. I want you to see that in Matthew 13, 33. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. See, when sin is in your life, it never stays contained. This is why somebody that starts off looking at a bad picture ends up looking at movies. And then at some point, those movies no longer stimulate them, so they look for worse movies, worse actions, worse uh, sin. So one day, some mother has to see their precious baby boy, now 30 or 20 or 19 or whatever it is, incarcerated for something like soliciting a prostitute. 
You know, that was not what the mother dreamed for that man. That was not what the man set out to be. Sin took him in that direction the further he yielded to it. So the biblical process starts by coming under the blood of the Lamb and throwing out that inclination, going to war with it, killing it at every turn. And then as you come to the next feast, you're already empty. And you're saying, Lord, I need a new change agent. I need a new kind of yeast. I need something of the heavens deposited in me that will work its way all the way through the batch of dough. Which is good for a dough boy. See, that's all that's happening, honey. The bread's rising. That's, that's all. I was once 6% body fat and chiseled. I was also a devil. Now, I've been made righteous and fluffy. Pentecost is for people who are covered in the blood of the Lamb. They are emptying their houses of sin so that they can be filled with a new kind of heavenly substance. Do you want a heavenly substance? This is ultimately what brings in the harvest, a harvest of righteousness for you and those who want righteousness for the kingdom of God. The heavenly leaven is all about a Christianity that is action-oriented, outward-focused. In fact, you can be sure no matter how much a person claims to be Pentecostal, if they're selfish, they have not met the requirements of Pentecost. If they're inward focused, then they don't understand God's heart. His heart is always for out there, never just for what's in here. This is why our church is outward focused. It's why our lives are. In fact, If you're depressed, the best cure for it is a daring leap of faith on someone else's behalf. I want to get to the heart of what I want to share with you today. Let's go to Daniel 2 together and pick up in verse 34. Our message title was Rock today. Jennifer occasionally listens to 80s music, so it's hard for me not to say R-O-C-K in the USA as I say rock. (laughs) Apparently not all of the leaven is out yet. In Daniel 2, beginning in verse 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock, say, but the rock. But the rock rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. That's an interesting kind of thing, don't you think? When I say the rock filled the whole earth, that's a bit of an absurd statement, don't you think? Rocks don't normally do anything at all. It's an unusual metaphor, to say the least. When you think of a rock, there's a lot of things that could come to mind. Like, I don't know, maybe this guy. I want a rock! I was told by the pastors... Less than two seconds was acceptable. More than two seconds crossed a line. So 
That is 1.879 seconds of the first album I ever bought. In 1984, I didn't know what pathetic posers these guys were. Uh, I didn't know that it was all marketing and there was no sincerity. And for some reason, it never occurred to me that they were men dressed very much like women. Um, I just knew that somewhere between two and five million of their albums were being played by my friends, and it appealed to some leaven somewhere inside me that wanted to rebel against society. So this, and we're not going to take it, we're not going to take it anymore, moved me more than, say, the Rock of Ages. Does that make sense? It's incredible. What comes to mind when you think of rock? Now, how many of you drive a Chrysler vehicle? Dodge vehicle? Uh, yeah, I can see why you wouldn't want to keep your hands up. <laughs> maybe, maybe when you see this vehicle... America is still the land of rugged individualists. I go rock. I was strong as I could be. I go rock. And every one of them demands something different from their Chevy truck, but they all want the same thing. The most dependable, longest-lasting trucks on the road. I don't, uh, I don't think that this is an arguable thing, since we've had a 1999 Suburban that this church has been using for 200,000 miles. Anybody got 200,000 miles on your Dodge? <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually kidding. Uh, the point being, when you say rock, a lot of things come to mind. And uh, I'm a little older than most of the folks in here. That's strange for me because I was always the baby in church. I, I was born again at 18 and ordained into ministry four years thereafter. So... Jennifer and I were usually the youngest in the church. But if you're from the Stone Age like we are, you might remember this. A pet rock. How many of you have ever seen a pet rock? Okay, so this is not as archaic as the majority of my references. This actually came out in 1975. You know, in fact, I want to give you some of the fact sheets about it. This guy with this excellent beard... Gary Dahl. He introduced Pet Rocks in 1975. The whole phenomenon, much like these uh, fidget gadgets that you guys have, the useless occupation of your time, energy, and your parents' money, right? Uh, it only lasted about six months, but in those six months, he sold 1.5 million of them. It came with a 32-page instructional manual on how to care for and train your rock. He said, some of the commands for your rock are easy. You can teach it to sit. You can teach it to stay. Of course, other, other commands were a little harder. Like you might in one day be able to train it to attack. Or in one day you might be able to teach it to play dead. But it's going to take a little while to teach that rock to roll over, right? 
skipping a rock is going to take a bit of practice. There are commands that are nearly impossible. Come here, stand up, or shake hands. Those are impossible commands for a rock. How is it that this guy became a multimillionaire selling rocks he found on the beach in Mexico? I mean, what is it about that? The reason this was so clever is because of the contrast between the inanimate rock and the, the personified characteristics of a pet. The incongruity of the perception, that very suggestion, lends to a smile. It's like when somebody walks up to you and says, here's my pet rock. You can't help but kind of smile and wonder what's coming next, right? I mean, did you go back to the picture before? Did you notice that this box has air holes in it so your rock can breathe? Now, I was previously chastised for making fun of Dwayne Johnson in a message that mentioned a rock because a man who liposuctions his chest is not actually a man. But I find the rock even slightly more ironic than a man in women's underwear dressed muscularly. He, uh, that rock needs air holes to breathe. 1.5 million people bought these. It was about $4 per rock in 1975. $4 for that rock, which, by the way, he found on the beach in Mexico. In today's dollars, that's closer to 20 Hey, what do your gadget spinner things cost? Six bucks. Somebody figured out that the roller skates in their closet from 1980 had bearings in them, and the world has gone crazy, huh? You know, that idea of the incongruity of the perception leading to a smile or personifying something that is inanimate, that's exactly what the Hebrew prophet was going for by suggesting that a rock was going to expand, to grow, and to take over the entire earth. Don't you think? In fact, anybody who heard that would be like, uh, come again? A rock is going to be cut out of a mountain. It won't be with human hands. And when the rock falls on this statue, which, by the way, represents the kingdom of man, it's going to crush the statue, and then the rock is going to grow and engulf the whole planet. It's about the pervasive nature and yet the unchangeable nature of God. See, He is both things. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes just like a rock. And yet, unlike a rock, His kingdom is on the move. It's active. It could never be defined in 14 doctrinal points that you simply shake your head to and then that's all you need to know. He is relevant in every situation at all times. He's like yeast inside, growing through the whole batch of dough, causing everything to rise. Somebody say, rise. rise. We need to let our lives rise. The, the kingdom's leaven is a change agent, and it will cause you to rise higher than you would. He's unchanging like a rock, but he is a change agent like... 
yeast is. So this rock that is strong enough to crush the kingdoms of men is also ever-growing and changing enough to fill the whole world, so certainly he's enough to fill your whole life. Amen? Go with me to Genesis 29. I want you to see some of the Hebrew imagery surrounding uh, how they spoke of God. In Hebrews, I'm sorry, Genesis 49, beginning in verse 22. Say there when you're there. Many people who've been through marriage counseling with us have learned to love what uh, Jacob said to Joseph. We'll read only a small portion of it today. Joseph is a fruitful vine. This is Genesis 49, 22. A fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attack him. They shot at him with hostility. Does it sound like his uh, circumstances were kind of bad? But his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber. Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. Because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Who is the mighty one of Jacob? It's God. Who is the shepherd of Israel? God. Who is the rock of Israel? God. Because of your father's God who helps you. Because of the almighty who blesses you, and that's about as far as you have to go with that passage this morning. The point is, is when the Hebrews thought of God, they thought of Him many ways. One of the ways is as a shepherd, uh, because he, they were shepherds, and it meant that He was nurturing, that He cared for the sheep. Another way was just that He was like a mighty rock, unmovable, unshakable, unbreakable. And yet that rock is supposed to grow in the earth in a way that crushes the sinful kingdoms of men and fills the whole earth. It reminds me of a story I heard about a child who was shipwrecked. You know, some of you have heard this from me before. It was moving to me because it was a real historical account. The child was shipwrecked and he could barely stand on a neighboring rock that was many yards from the shore. As the tide rose through the night and the ship disintegrated on the rocks that it crashed on, he's up on his tiptoes. He's just trying to not drown. He was only seven years old. And when it was found the next morning, the only survivor of the ship crash, they said, did you not tremble in the night? Were you not terrified? Did you not tremble when you saw the water rising? He said, I did, but the rock did not. The immovable nature of the rock is designed to let you know that He is an ever-present help. He, he's, he's not there one day and not there the next. Isaiah 26, 4. You don't have to turn there. I want you to hear it. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. How long do you trust in Him? Forever. And He is the rock eternal. His nature doesn't change. If He loved you when He found you in sin, and now you're a Christian in love with the Lord, and you've identified leaven in your life, do you think He does not love you now? See, He doesn't change. He is the rock eternal forever. The way Isaiah says it in 44 and verse 8, chapter 44, verse 8, again, you can just hear me. Because... There's something to be said about the way that he says this. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. 
Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Listen how God is speaking. He's, in the Hebrew context, the rock is his divine presence. And he helps the believer, the eternal, trustworthy God. And for humor's sake, God, who is all-knowing, says, is there anybody else like me? I don't know of anybody else like me. This sounds like a teenage boy bragging to his girlfriend. You know, is there anybody out there like this? I don't think so. God is showing off about his unchanging nature, his forever quality. He's telling you, I was there before you were born. I was there when you're born and I'll be there when you're gone. I am trustworthy. But he also wants you to understand through the Pentecost principle, anybody who receives his divine presence, that presence has to grow every day. Because as much as he's the stationary rock, he's also the leaven that is always bringing change. In this sense, you can think of the rock as his divine presence. So when D. Snyder said he wanted to rock, he was asking for God's divine presence. He just didn't know it. Then he wouldn't be a twisted sister. He'd be a holy masculine male. Maybe the world does want to rock. And they just don't know it. Many of us think of being filled with the Spirit as an event. The Spirit enters you and you have a supernatural experience. You prophesy or speak in other tongues. I don't want to downplay that today. Because that is beautiful. In fact, I'm going to pray for many of you. And it will happen for you today. Because God is a rock. And He will do that. But just for a moment, if you think of the rock as His divine presence... Consider what this passage means in Exodus 33. Are you all still with me? I'm hoping that we'll make an impression on you, but I'm trying not to throw a rock at you. Exodus 33, verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness. I don't know whether you had parents that said, oh, my goodness. God said, all my goodness. How much goodness is that? When we say all God's goodness, can you begin to comprehend what that even means? All his goodness to every person that he's ever shown goodness to? All the, do you know that the Bible declares God cares about a swallow and he makes sure that her nest is close to his presence? What do we mean all of God's goodness? That is unfathomable to me. I mean, it's an easy enough sentence to say. Having, you know, it's... Like the computer technician tells you this. I can explain this to you, but I can't understand it for you. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Say, no one. No one. Then the Lord said, Mm, there is a place near me. Say a place, a place. Near, me. near me. Oh, man. You may not be able to see God and live, but there is a place near him where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock. 
and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face may not be seen. You cannot conceive of, you cannot understand, you cannot take in God unless you get to a rock that is near Him and while you are standing on the rock, He places you inside of the rock. When that happens, the world begins to change. We're waiting for a rock to fill the world. I'm waiting to be hidden inside that rock. It's an interesting turn of events, isn't it? Moses was wrapped or immersed in the rock. He surrounded himself with the rock. He was hidden inside of it. This is one way in his life he was capable of seeing or comprehending the glory of God. You know, the Lord is an interesting thing. The further you are from him, the stranger he is to you. The closer you get to him, he's no less amazing, but somehow or another... It's beautiful, not strange. First time my parents came to a spirit-filled service, they walked out offended, never came back. Can I tell you the hell that unleashed on our lives? It was because it was strange to them. They preferred things neatly within their control. Carnal. Sometimes in the Christian world, we focus on being a container for God. We say, Lord, will you fill me? And what we mean by that is, will you come into me and add something that's good? We still want to control every bit of that so that you can do what you want to do when you want to do it. You see a different side of God when you say, will you come wrap yourself around me in a way that changes my view of everything? In other words, you're not trying to contain God. You're asking Him to contain you enveloped, immersed in His Spirit. Miraculous things happen when you allow your life to be wrapped in a rock. Look at Luke 23. In Luke 23, verse 52. Say there when you're there. Luke 23, verse 52. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down wrapped it in a linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Church, how does that story end? When your life is wrapped in the rock of the divine presence of God, resurrection power is possible. When you are so hidden inside of what God is doing, all you can see is what He is doing. When you're not asking to become a container for Him, you're saying, I want you to contain all of my life. When He's not a small part of you that you feel like you can digest, but instead, you have been plunged into the divine Jonah's whale, so to speak, and you're only going where he says go. You're only doing what he says do. He is the master of your life. The world begins to look different. So let me ask you something, Christian, while we're talking about that. How wrapped up in his divine presence are you? It's been my experience that many people that have been in church many years, they are wrapping their intellect around God. 
and he does what they think he should do. He does when they think he should do it. In fact, their conception of God is really all that there is. Church people are often the worst. It's why they usually miss the historical revivals. They don't believe that God would do what he is doing through those people. Say, them people. people. Now you speak Louisiana like me. When the reality is what God is looking for are people that are so lost in him, they see his moving everywhere. That's an incredible concept, isn't it? The correlation between the resurrection and the rock is one that Job spoke about. I love this. In Job 18, verse 23, he says this. Oh, that my words were recorded. It's interesting because they would be. That they were written on a scroll. That's beautiful because they were. That they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead. I don't know about that one. (laughs) Or engraved on a rock forever. Oh, I know about that. What kind of words did he want engraved on a rock forever? I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So, well, if we're talking about a rock as this divine presence, how are Job's words written on a rock? Go to Isaiah 51. We have a few more scriptures for you today, and then we're going to begin praying for you. And we're going to go perform out there what we've practiced in here. My intention's not to preach you to death today. It's to encourage you about the unchanging nature of our God, and yet the ever-changing nature of His kingdom within you and without, surrounding you in every way. In Isaiah 51, it says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut. Look to the what? You were cut out of a rock. Did human hands cut you out of a rock? Who cut you out of that rock? very interesting. When you read Daniel 2, 34 and 35, we're clearly talking about the Messiah. The Messiah would be like a rock that was cut out of a mountain and that rock would fall on the kingdoms of men and, and the Messiah's kingdom would take over the whole earth. The rock would take over the whole earth. But in Isaiah's time, 200 plus years before Daniel, he said, you are cut out of a rock. That's a very interesting idea. It's not just Messiah that is cut out of the very divine presence of God. You're supposed to be as well. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one. And I blessed him and made him into many. What is the nature of a man when he's cut out of a rock? He starts off as one, but he ends up as many. So throughout the Bible, we have this concept A rock is unchangeable, and yet when God cuts out a rock instead of a man, it makes more. Now think how silly this would be if I told you I dropped water on my pet rock and I came in the next day and there were two. (laughs) Say, Eric, I appreciate your strange mystical superstition. Um, You know, you have the whole beard redneck thing going, let's not add cult leader to it, right? 
People are going to talk anyway. It doesn't matter. The problem is, is we're looking at something completely within the confines of the natural world. And what we're finding out is that God is supernatural. And you don't have the ability to make a rock grow, but He does. You don't have the ability to change your spots or your skin color, but He has the ability to change your very character. The whole point is that what is impossible with a man has become possible for men through the King of Kings. You know what this means, Mama? It means you got hope for your teenager. Do you know what this means, Daddy? Your kid's not hopeless. Do you know what it means for you, Christian? You've come to the life-changing rock of our God. He can be depended upon. He will never move. You won't show up one day and He ran away from you any more than a mountain would do that or could do that. And yet, He does not limit it like a boulder. He's not limited. He can change your life and grow in every way inside of your life. Pentecost is how you get a harvest of righteousness. You don't just ask for God's presence to come into you. You move your life into God's presence. Oh, come on. That's different than an experience at an altar. That becomes a lifestyle. That is what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. Baptized in the Spirit, as much as I love the songs and stuff, is not to drink the Spirit. It is to be immersed in all that the Spirit is so that He's even inside of you, bubbling outside of you. The picture is not of a man drinking water. It's of a man who is swallowed by a torrential power of God. So how baptized in the Spirit are you actually? Job said that he wanted his words inscribed upon a rock. Did you know that Paul said the same thing? In 2 Corinthians 3.3, listen to these words. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. See, you are supposed to be chips off of the bigger block. And even as His kingdom is filling the whole world, He's supposed to be filling your life and you're supposed to be influencing everyone around you as if God had written a Bible on your life for others to read. This cannot happen through an event at an altar. It can only be initiated somewhere. And once that leaven is inside of you and surrounding you and thoroughly inside of your house... It invades every area of life. Oh man, do you want the kingdom to grow in you? Do you want the kingdom to grow around you? Don't just drink of His Spirit, swim in Him. Ask Him to contain you, not just for you to drink of Him. I think I've covered the immovable nature. So I'm just going to tell you that Zechariah 12.3 says God will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. See, He makes His people like Him. That's, that's really the beautiful thing about our God. It's that you come to Him and you're nothing like Him. But the more time you spend with Him, the more of His characteristics you pick up in your life. So what's the answer, friends, if, if you don't like what you see when you look in the mirror? You change it by going to spend time with the one who can. 
And the more time you spend with Him, the more you become like Him. He's filling the earth and He will fill your life and you will bring things to other lives that will change. I'd like to close with a couple passages. I want to share them conceptually with you. In Luke 14, 16 through 24, people are invited to a, a, a special event. And they make excuses about why they can't go. You know, one is plowing, the other you know, has got a family emergency, the other is planting. You know, there, there are reasons. In other words, they have different priorities. You're being invited to not just partake in, but to participate with God in His divine presence. Can you imagine how personally He will take that if we say, no, we have other priorities? Now let's honestly examine your life. How much of your life have you spent examining other priorities, fulfilling other priorities? Do you say God is first, but the reality is you are first? You know, my observation about most marriages is that every spouse says, I love this one more than every other, but the truth is there's nobody they love more than themselves. That's, I mean, it, it, it shows up all around us. You know, do you buy the best for you first? <laughs> do, do you make sure your needs are met before every other person's? There's no way that we're in the kingdom acting like that. We love the Lord. We've tasted of Him. He may be working in us, but we're not surrounded by Him in our lives because we're choosing to box Him out through our priorities. See, you're not excluded because you've sinned. You exclude yourself if you decide to live in sin rather than to live in Him. Do you, do you feel the difference in those things? He wants to be your priority. You know what? He calls you in the Scripture His wife. How many husbands want to be the last thing on your wife's mind? Yeah, I get a little uncomfortable when my wife goes with the pastor's wives to watch Thor or something. You know, I'm like, really, Jen? Why are you attracted to a brutish Viking? You want to be the only picture on the mantle, don't you? In fact, ladies, you want your husband to pursue you. You want him to love you, to be interested in you more than anyone else. That's, that fills your heart with good things, and it hurts when you feel rejected or you're not captivating. The Lord has already reached out to us. He's already pursued us. He's given us a book written in His blood. He's pouring out His presence into humanity. He is pursuing us. He is willing. It's us who are often so unwilling. And you know what He wants from us? He wants our thoughts to be upon Him first. Him and all. The cry of Israel is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Do you know what that means among many other things? He's primary. He's essential. He's the first. He's the head. 
He's the top. He's the supreme of everything. Now, honestly, by that standard, you can play church your whole life and never get anywhere close to the Lord being everything to you. It's the last scripture I want to share with you today. Let's go to Luke 6. In the sixth chapter of Luke, I missed something for years. The Vincents will listen to this message in Indonesia, and I'm very thankful for their influence in my life. Pastor Brent's become quite a man of God, and it's our great joy to support missions around the world. Uh, honestly, they're the first thing that I think about when I wake up each day, are the missions works around the world. I know I'm going to see you, and I care for you, and... Uh, it's not that you're second best, it's that we have each other always. The missionaries are often out there alone. And I worry for them and I pray for them. The other churches I feel the same way about. To me, they're like missions because in large part they grew out of this work. Our heart's desire needs to be for others. And the Vincents taught me to read in Luke 6 something that I had been reading in Matthew. And Matthew's account is different than Luke's. Matthew adds a very, uh, Luke adds a very important detail that Matthew leaves out. And so I missed an essential truth, and I want to share it with you. Beginning in verse 46 of chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? By the way, when you see a word repeated in the Bible, like Lord, Lord, this isn't a day where you can't highlight. There are no emojis. You cannot bold your print or increase the font size. So one of the only ways you can emphasize sincerity or impact or passion is to double the word. So don't think of this person as just half-heartedly saying, Lord. They're insistently saying, Lord. It, it's very similar to going, I'm telling you the truth. You're really, really, really my Lord. But do not do what I say. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Don't we want to be men and women who are putting his words into practice? That person. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. What did he do? He dug down deep. Say that with me. Dug down deep. See, Matthew doesn't record those words. It simply says he built his house on a rock. And so very often I think, oh, amen, we'll go, we'll build our house on the rock, and you are missing something. To be enveloped in that rock, to be surrounded by that rock, to do more than have just an event, you have to dig something out first. You have to eliminate those priorities that have defined your life you have to repent, which means fundamentally change things. You can't add God to the life that you have. Passover comes before Pentecost, not the other way around. You have to empty your house of your own leaven before God will fill your house with the leaven of heaven. So often we want to build our house on the rock. We say, hey, Lord, I love you. I think you're great. I'd like to add you to me. It doesn't work that way. He will take you and place you inside 
of Him, but He will not take Himself and put it inside of you. I mean, to some extent, we can argue about semantics. You, you understand what I'm implying to you. He cannot simply be a compartment within your life. You have to be enveloped in Him. So the truth is, is so often sin's taken us further than we wanted to go. And now that we're here and we don't like it, we're like, I'd like to take a Jesus pill, you know? Something just to kind of get me over. Maybe a seven-day Jesus antibiotic until I'm over this cold. And then I can get right back with my life as I always have. Maybe you even got a gift certificate for completing your antibiotic cycle. But He's supposed to invade every area of your life. So much so that it could be said you're hidden inside of Him. See, that's not for full-time ministers. That's, that's not just for some special class of Christian. That's for all Christians. So I have a question for you, my Christian friends. Are you ready to dig down deep? Because... There are priorities within lives in this room that are not God's priority. There are motives, ambitions, things that... It's not that they're evil in the sense of they're somehow lascivious or unclean. They're evil and unclean because God didn't give them to you. And they're remnants of the life that you want rather than the life that God has for you. See, you haven't truly lost your life in Him, you've retained your life and added Him. The rock of Israel will not allow it. He will require you to circumcise your heart, to cut away those things. And I'm going to tell you the truth. He won't do it in a single day. He'll reveal some to you and you'll cut it out and be very glad that it's done and you'll celebrate it and then He'll show you something else. And you're like, are you kidding me? When do I stop weeding this soil of my heart? When do I stop pulling out? He's like, you never will. Because I'm your Lord and I'm perfect. And you're going to aim for me your whole life. You never get to stop doing this. The event stops at some point. Being surrounded, swallowed by God, you never stop anywhere. Oh, church, do you need to dig down deep? Have you stopped along the way somewhere? You went a respectable distance with God in the eyes of your peers, so now it's time to relax. Or have you gone all the way into a reckless abandonment of concern for anything other than the kingdom? If you're like me, you thought you had. And then somewhere along the way, you decided the things that you liked and you settled there. I'd like to invite you to have a Pentecostal experience. To empty your heart of the leaven of your own thinking, your own ways, your own pleasures. So that He can fill you with His. And what that's going to look like for you is a supernatural emptying and a supernatural filling. Ever wonder why some people are more full of the Lord than others? Because they lost more of their life than the other did. They made more room to fill. Judges 15, 9, a hollow place in the rock opened up and became a spring for the man of God. 
the more hollow you are of your own ambitions, desires, plans, the more room there is for the rock of God to fill your life. And then you become immovable and unshakable. We're going to have an altar time of ministry here. This is not a church of cowards. We're many things. I mean, a lot of people don't think we're religious enough. We're not. Not nearly. But the one thing that we cannot be successfully prosecuted for is not being bold about what we love. I love my king. So we don't bow our heads in here. We don't close our eyes. We are not ashamed to say, my life must change. Because if we're ashamed in a group of supporters, then who are we kidding? As soon as you walk out the door, all you have done is successfully labeled yourself as a liar. There is no room in the kingdom for liars and cowards. So during our altar time, here's, here's what you have the chance to do. To practice standing up in front of the whole world because you're standing up in front of everyone here. No eyes are closed. No heads are bowed. Everyone is fully awake and sober so that we see exactly where you stand. Because there's going to be a day when there won't be anything to hide behind anyway. You might as well practice now. And if there's something that needs to be dug out of your life, then ask God to use the scalpel of the Word of God to help you rid it. And the moment that you rid yourself of something that doesn't belong, ask Him to fill you with the exact opposite. In Ephesians 4, it looks like this. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. Cut it out now. Do something useful with your hands. We don't speak the unwholesome words, he says, but rather we speak the words of God. It's not enough to not be something. We must take on the leaven of the kingdom that invades every area of our life. When I begin to pray, resolve in your heart right now, just, just right now, you won't be the kind of miserable, sniveling coward that looks to see if somebody else acts on the sermon. I mean, do you understand how wicked that is? Lord, I feel you dealing with me, but I won't let you be successful with me unless I have the comfort of someone else acting. You can't be saved like that. And the most miserable part about it is grown men, if they can be called that, Get there last and little soft-hearted girls get there first. When a man is really desiring change, he'll run through brick walls to get there. You don't let the little girls go first because they might get trampled under the man who's actually hungry for the Lord. So I'm going to ask that we stand on the outside and that something rise up inside you called the courage of Christ. And you boldly ask for what you want. You come to an altar and ask the Lord for what you need. Because anybody who's going to please Him has to believe that He exists in your situation and that He'll reward the man who seeks Him. And if you don't do that, you can't please Him. That's, that's what the word, that's Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. You cannot be pleasing to Him. You know what? There's no disclaimer on that. There's no, unless you grew up in a Christian family. 
unless the Pope himself blessed you, unless some Protestant leader blessed you. There is no disclaimer. You're either honest before your God or you're not. As soon as we start to pray, I'm going to ask you to do what you must do. Stand to your feet.